0: I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Elise Lunin is the host of the fabulous Pulling the Thread podcast. It is one of my favorites. She was the CCO of Goop, she's a writer, she's an editor, and she has the best-selling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. In this episode, we dive in to how the patriarchy and Judeo-Christian tradition culturally and genetically embed in our consciousness and hold women back. What are the seven deadly sins? Sloth, envy, pride, gluttony, greed, anger, lust, What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to achieve as a woman? And how we hold ourselves back because of this programming that if we do any of these things, if we fall prey to any of these sins, we are no longer good. But really, how do we look inward to see where it's coming from? Is it real? Are we holding ourselves back? And how can we use it to heal ourselves, but also to get ahead, to help others, to be a more loving, patient, kind, and successful person, but also gender and how we can then use that to become a more equitable society. I'm such a huge fan of yours and no, No, I really am. And I so appreciate all the things that you've done and put into the world. I love your podcast. I think pulling the thread is just such an important conversation and highlighting such incredible thinkers and really encouraging people to change the way that they engage with themselves and also with culture, society, work, life. And just, I Goob, everything you've done has been at such a high level and such important work. And there's so much to unpack in your book, which I just thought was incredible. So to start, let's just like get it off out there (laughs) <laughs> what is On Our Best Behavior? Give me the, the give the quick summary of On Our Best Behavior because you're going to do a better job than I am.
1: On Our Best Behavior is an exploration of the way that women are programmed for goodness while men are programmed for power. Although it's not really about men, but I think men would benefit greatly from reading it. <laughs> it's about how the psychology of women has been formed in our patriarchal culture around the pursuit of these ideas of goodness, which are actually coordinated and correlated with the seven deadly sins. And for some people, their immediate response is, well, I'm not religious. The point of the book is that religion is culture and that this is whispered into our ears. And when you think about the sins, which are sloth, pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, and anger you can very quickly and clearly understand and see how those ideas corral the lives of women in a way that they don't corral the lives of men and that we are constantly policing these instincts in ourselves and in each other. And so it's an exploration of that. How do you define good? What is good in in this context? Well, that's sort of the rub. So... And I get into the history of patriarchy and sort of, and where- it was an amazing chapter. Thank you, thank you. Like, it was
0: like one chapter, like, here you go. You want to understand what everything means from the dawn of civilization (laughs) until today? Here you go, the patriarchy on a platter.
1: (laughs) And then it's correlation. Because originally the patriarchy was essentially rules that were misogynistic. These laws, Hammurabi's Code, being sort of the earliest example that we have. But then with- judeo-christianity they became married to morality and the seven deadly sins weren't actually in the bible they're not gospel they came out of the egyptian desert in the fourth century and then they were ultimately assigned to mary magdalene in the sixth century which is when they sort of entered catholicism as these cardinal vices which is an important context because one, they were sort of made up out of the desert. And then two, they were specifically ascribed to women, even though they came to represent these sort of collective human values. But I wanted, I needed and was thrilled to find that there's a reason that I think they're so in us. And now oh, goodness, if you're a Mary Magdalene nut, and there are a lot of women who are, she's quite, and, and it's again, a history that I tell in part in the book, but it's a really fascinating story. She had a gospel that was deemed heretical and cast out, but really she was in some ways, if you buy into any of this, Jesus's first apostle, she was his best student. She's the one who understood what he was saying better than all the men. And in her gospel, he essentially says, goodness is inherently who you are. It's baked into your core. Do not look to any external authority. And So there's goodness, which I think is sort of an inviolate part of each and every one of us that cannot be substantiated by anyone else, validated or granted. It's just part of our humanity. And of course, we have badness in us too. We're all full of shadow and light. That's what it is to be human. But in our culture, these ideas of goodness have come to be social structures that are adjudicated by external authority. So it might be a priest, it might be a professor, a parent, a boss, a friend. And a good woman in our culture is someone who is tireless, who subjugates all of her wants to other people's needs, who has no appetites and desires of her own, is an object of desire, but never desiring, has her entire physical self under control. In conformity with exterior standards, and quite frankly, she's never upset about any of it. A good woman is selfless. A good woman is of service to the world, not necessarily in the world. That is our programming. That's what drives us unconsciously. And when you be, kind of become, it's a, it's the Barbie movie felt like on our best behavior, actually in Mattel form but it's this collective brainwashing and when you start observing it and interrupting it and interrupting it with each other you become aware of just how much of it is in you well cuz goodness can be controlled
0: and then destroyed yeah. yes and it can be ruined by ourselves by culture by people who are trying to yeah. you know make people fit into a mold that works
1: for them for a structure that is imposed a thousand percent. And you think about goodness, it's like a tenuous idea, the way that we think about it. It can be taken away. And for women, reputational damage, she's a bad person, she's a bad mother, she's toxic. That is a certain type of death. You know, you watch how easy it is to sort of cancel or destroy a woman on reputation. That doesn't work on men. Men are impervious. To assaults against their integrity in that way. The only thing we care about with men is their power. So they can be criminals, they can be horrendous people, destroying other people and destroying the planet. And we still revere them so long as they're powerful. And we quantify power by money, by control. And, you know, you see this rampantly all over. Whereas women, you say, you're a bad person, and she just slinks away so much of it is based on fear and so yeah. much of it is
0: based on scarcity mm-hmm. because i've seen this happen with men and i and i want to try to there's so many things to discuss you know we we focus really here on like women work well-being where they intersect and this is like everything in a book and a conversation but when you think about work i know that women There's only one, right? So you're fighting against this one slot or, you know, there's three Mm -hmm. seats on a board or, you know, it's so ingrained, the idea of scarcity and fear that I've seen men where somebody like real fucks up in a big way and they're willing to give that person a shot. Cause like men look at it and are like, well, that could happen to me Mm -hmm. or like got to give him a second chance. He's a good guy, whatever. And women aren't
1: given that chance by society and by each other. Yes. One of the reasons that I wrote the book is that I woefully could identify, you know, we talk a lot about the lack of equity in in culture and a lot of it is systemic. There are certainly sort of horrendous misogynistic men in our midst and there are some horrendous misogynistic, very patriarchal women as well, but I couldn't explain the gap in the sense of the way that we like things to be so binary. Like men are bad. Women are good. Men are keeping women down. Right. And as you said, you look at the 2016 election, which is when I first started thinking about this book. And you look at all these women who theoretically are voting against their best interests, who are 53% of them. Yes. Defaming and deriding a woman for like I was saying things like, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way, et cetera. And I really wanted to understand what that is. And it's so apparent in the social literature. This isn't a men versus women issue specifically. This is a question of our sort of own internal, internalized patriarchy, our own internalized misogyny, the way that women are typically harder on other women than men are. And that's what I really wanted to understand. Because yes, we can blame our patriarchal culture, but in many ways it's a cop out i wanted to identify this in myself how am i doing this to myself and what am i doing to other women that i'm not aware of and yeah yeah and yes there's scarcity there's so many factors it's complicated and i don't want to blame victims here but at the same time it is like intensely in us in a way that in order to stop it we have to both identify and own before we can sort of move in a different direction? Well, I mean,
0: sidebar, we can see it happening with Kamala Harris right now. Yeah. And the dialogue that's happening around her just is like, it's so unreal to me when I hear it because I'm like, are you even hearing what you're saying? But that's not, we're not talking about politics. So that's my own little sidebar. I just have to say it's making me crazy. But I do think that, in your podcast, when you bring up all of these things, like we'll talk about, you know, you're talking about mentality, you're talking about addiction, you're talking about trauma, you know, you're interviewing people who are experts in these fields and really diving into where it comes from, what's the history of it, and how do you, just by shining a light and paying attention to it, then try to fix it or at least notice it enough to change course. And that is, I think, what this, what your book is really doing in this topic. Cause it's like, we're not going to be able to change thousands of years of society and culture and religion tomorrow. You know, with the second shift, we're trying to change it in the workplace, mm-hmm. but it's so structural. And a lot of it is just, if you can engage in the conversation and just have people feel like they have a more enlightened perspective of things, then you can slowly make a change. I've seen this happen. This happened the other day with us where we were recruiting for a role, the second shift, and we had been trying to recruit for a similar position and the woman was too much personality. Mm. They want women. They come to us because they want to hire a woman. That is the goal. That's why you're coming to our business. And she was had too much personality and you know that wasn't enough. It was going to shake up the status quo. And then Months later, they're interviewing, same role, new candidate. They really like her. She doesn't have enough sparkle. Mm. Doesn't have enough sparkle was used. And to her credit, my partner Kemp was like, hold up. Like, that is fucking bullshit. You can't say that. Do you hear what you're saying? And it's like, it is our responsibility to bring this out and shine a light on it. To Mm -hmm. say you know, do you hear what you're saying? What do you mean? And do you like what you mean? Right. And that's, I just think why we need to have people engaged in this conversation and have thought leaders who are willing to look at the history and sort of like the epigenetics of how we got to where we are as women. Yeah. Then that's what you're doing. And I want to talk a little bit about your own personal story because, the pressure on women to be good, the burnout, the impossibility of it is a lot of ways what drove you to write the book, but also your own personal journey to get there. So Mm -hmm. tell that story of your
1: own personal burnout. I have always been a performance-oriented, striving child, high-achieving since birth in some ways. I think part of that is baked into sort of who I am and in my personality. And some of it was definitely driven sort of from culture. And it's interesting in the process of writing this book, I always, in some ways, wanted to blame my parents for my performative instincts. And then the more I've come to understand that this is both deeply cultural and also personal, the less I've found there, you know, when I really start digging into the veracity of that, I'm like, is that true? Is that true? Funny. My parents sent me to a school with no grades, no textbooks, no standardized testing. My parents never validated my like trophies. They didn't push me to compete in any sport. Like so much of it was me, all me, but it was interesting how long it took me to sort of Uh, It's just very natural to want to find something, someone to blame. But yeah, there was, I think, a sense for me, one, I liked it. I liked the validation. I liked understanding sort of like who I was in the context of how I ranked against other people. But there was also a sense of safety and security. And I very early sort of in college recognized like, oh, I do much better when I overload my plate. And that there is a relationship for me between productivity and overextension. And so I started taking, you know, double majored, I started taking extra credits. And that was not a good discovery, really, because it set me up for this sort of career in the world where it wasn't enough just to have one job. I needed to be, and some of this was like financial need. I needed to be ghostwriting books on the side or consulting on the side or finding other ways to have income. But it just sort of established early on that this is my mechanism for, you know, 100% wasn't enough. I needed to get 120. And I lived like that until I was 40. 40. Essentially, at one point between jobs, I grew up in magazines. I worked at Connie Nast for a long time. I worked for this internet company. And then before I went full time at Goop, I was part time at Goop, part time at Beauty Counter, which is a beauty line that people might know. And I was ghost writing, I believe, two books. And Two part time jobs, as your group in particular knows, is not one full time job. That's like like five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's (laughs) two and a half full time jobs. (laughs) And I had a six month old at that point. So at various points in my career, I recognized like this is not sustainable and this is insane. And yet somehow I have a lot of energy and I'm capable of doing this. And so I should do it. And I'm the primary breadwinner, et cetera. But yeah, I got to the point. And I think that this is like also a a function of our corporate culture where, and the roots of it are complex, but like you go into the history of work and the sort of, there used to be sort of people who were just managers, right? There was middle management who we deride and mock, but managing teams is complex and some people are more gifted at it than others. And what I found happened to me, and I don't think I'm unusual, is that managing a team felt completely destabilizing to me if that was my sole job was running an org and managing the content team at Goop. Like that wasn't to me enough, even though you have a lot of people who work for you, you're keeping a lot of trains on the tracks and that should be enough. And no one was saying this isn't enough. This was just me having anxiety about that not enoughness so I you know, was co-hosting a podcast and typically doing two episodes a week and doing all my own reading and my own research. I couldn't let go of being an individual contributor because to me, there was like no safety or security in purely being an executive who has at the end of the day, no direct work to account for my time, if that makes sense. And I feel yes. like- We're just set up culturally where it's like, one, in order to succeed and continue to be promoted and earn more money, et cetera, you have to manage teams in order to climb corporate ranks. And some of us aren't built for that. And it can be destabilizing in particularly in sort of our culture, which is also very like productivity focused. And what did you achieve? And, and I think for women, I don't know if this is a gendered thing. I just, this is how I feel. I don't want to take credit for my team's work. If anything, I want to autonomize and empower. I hate the word empower, but like their work is their work. I can't claim that. And I don't want to. So I don't know. I find So then you don't have the achievement of your own. But if you don't have the achievement of your work. own and to say, but this is how I am spending my time. And so for me, it just felt like that construct is very difficult for me. And it's difficult for me now, you know, as a right, you know, I host a podcast. I just published on Our Best Behavior. I'm starting to think about my next book. I write a weekly newsletter. Sometimes I was, Sometimes I write two newsletters a week I do a lot of content on social. Like I don't know how to stop and I don't know what's enough and I sit on boards and I've stopped consulting and I'm sure other people can relate to this because for me I've never been able to find that line between feeling resentful that I'm I'm being taken advantage of and I'm not charging enough and or feeling like I'm under delivering and somehow my value doesn't meet my rate. To me, it's like Wizard of Oz. And I, it just makes me so uncomfortable that I would rather not.
0: You, I don't mean this to be in any way like, you know, negating what you're saying and the importance of it, but you sound like every single person yeah. who I talk to at the second shift, you sound like an overachiever, yeah, perfectionistic woman, parent, juggling all these things and trying to figure out how to make it all work and then burning out out because it's no. just an impossible it's so hard and it's really an impossible the goal is unattainable and then like the journey to get there is not an enjoyable. Yeah. And so it's like it's a lose lose in a lot of ways, and I understand what you're saying. I also think when you were going through this process, in and I I had a similar situation happen where this was like kind of like post 2016 election, pre COVID, mm-hmm. and it was like the height of girl bossness, and th- which was I think an incredibly toxic moment because mm. it was. It was really saying that like, you better do everything. You're going to do everything and you're going to go and we're going to hustle. And it's like the intensity and pressure of it. And I think also like anger at where politics were and like the unfairness of things was like an explosion waiting to happen. And I personally, I had like an autoimmune thing that happened from Mm -hmm. running that fast and hard and like being like, Oh, I'm just gonna, just gonna keep drinking coffee. Cause I love the feeling of like, I get so much done. I get so much done. I can like accomplish everything all the time. And then it was like an untenable thing to do. And I realized unenjoyable. And also I didn't find as like, it wasn't like the goal is different or the productivity is different. It's just my mindset's different. I just had to learn how to like, let it go, see where it was coming from. And that moment was just like, I think it happened for a lot of women, you know, in that. And we hit COVID Mm -hmm. and we hit a wall where we were like, what is happening? I got these kids, I got this job. Do I want any of these things? Like, yeah, what, what is important What does it all mean? And so I love that you actually spent the time looking at what does it all mean? Yeah. What do do I want? What will make me happy? Why am I
1: unhappy? Yeah. And I think that culturally, you know, we've all been trained, all of us, and it's very human to sort of look outside of ourselves for all the reasons that everything is messed up. And yes, there's like certainly validity to that approach. But I also just was like, I'm just railing against something that I can't control. And the only thing that I have control over is myself and the way that I respond to other people, other women, other men. And so I wanted to locate it again in myself because I was like, Yes, we've made so much progress, but to me, I was like, there's no way until we sort all of this ambivalence and identify what's actually sort of below driving us that we can accomplish what we need to do out there. And we don't really need men in order to do it. We just need to be on side with other women, although it's great. And I think there are a lot of men who are completely on our side, potentially more... (laughs) I agree. I, I, I agree with that completely. (laughs) Like, you know, there, I
0: don't, I don't think it's a binary, you know, us versus them. I think that we need to be on our own sides.
1: Yes. It's not a binary. It's just presented to us as a binary. And when we talk about sort of the patriarchy in quotes, I think many of us, including myself at the onset of this project, I was like, I don't actually know what that means. I'm just like, there's an enemy and I am in opposition to this enemy and like, fuck the patriarchy. Yes. (laughs) And what is it? And where did it come from? And was it an inevitability? And how does it show up in our lives? And is it Oz where there are some nefarious men behind a curtain pulling strings? Or is it just a system that's alive in us? And I have come to believe it's a system that's alive in us and that we can evolve and change and shift it. How? I think it starts by becoming aware of what's us versus the story we're told about who we're supposed to be. It starts with identifying and then starting to separate from these constructs. So for me, an example would be, I use this anecdote all the time because as you said, like the other thing is, and I'm writing this book and interviewing so many people over the years, like I am everyone. We're all tapped into the same collective unconscious. These experiences that we've been siloed into believing are just ours, these voices in our head are collective. And we're all having the same experience or version of the same experience. So the story I often tell is just like the recognition that my husband pointed out to me, the acknowledgement that, like, I hadn't in the course of our marriage sat and watched a movie outside of a movie theater. Sat and watched a movie or TV show with him for more than 20 minutes without needing to get my computer, needing to go do something else, needing to go into the kitchen and like unload the dishwasher, this invisible cattle prod inside of me, pushing me to do something productive, to this sort of internal chastising and chastisement. And I yes. could say, like, oh my God, this is so fucked up and screw my husband and I have to take care of all this stuff and do all this stuff. But I, you know, in the course of writing this book, I was like, he's not telling me to do any of this. And yes, if I left a lot of stuff to him, it probably wouldn't happen or it wouldn't happen on the schedule, which I believe it should. But this is me. This is me sort of propelling myself off the couch. He would like me to sit here and do nothing with him. And I can't. And so that was sort of this revelation of why. And like, what is this voice? This is what the chapter on sloth is about. Because I feel like we're just an army of automatons that are so driven by all of this internal programming. And you start to observe it and disconnect. And it's like, well, wait, okay. Maybe my house doesn't need to sparkle.
0: If I don't make that scrapbook of our pictures of our trips, like we'll survive. We'll survive.
1: If there's not a spreadsheet on all the camp trunks, it's going to be okay. Yes. And like, who is deciding that? And a lot of it is like, we stuff that we enforce with with each other, right? Like I look at what's happened, you know, it used to be in the sixties that women were doing uh, very little childcare right? And growing up, you know, my childhood was all about benign neglect. My childhood was like, go outside. You know, we had horses. I had an amazing childhood, but my childhood was about entertaining myself and some parameters about like, you can't watch TV. It was in like the cold room, but my parents weren't like programming my days and infusing them with extracurriculars and advancement opportunities. So it's all ratcheted (laughs) up. When you look at that, the sort of the professionalization of childcare, et cetera, it's a function of, I think this like ephemeral balance that we're conditioned to believe exists. And so for me, it shows up as, oh, wow, I like worked so hard on my book this week. Now I need to apply like the same amount of attention to my children. I need to be compensatory at all times. And so we just ratchet it up. Like if I care so much about this work project, then I need to care this much about my child's birthday party. And then we observe it with each other and the standards just keep growing. Like a social media childhood industrial
0: complex gone wrong because you're just watching what other people are doing and you're like, well, if I didn't you know, do this thing, then I'm doing it wrong. You're watching in real time what's happening in other people's lives and then making yourself feel really bad. Yes. And then in every capacity, as a mother, as a worker, you know, it's like an impossible standard and that then, like you said, just sets your own personal wiring to a place that is unhealthy because yes. it's from you. And so, yeah, paying attention to that. And I have to say, i loved, you wrote a New York Times op-ed about mothering and being a mother. Ambivalence, yes. And ambivalence. And I, I thought that was, like all things, you bring a very important topic up with a lot of emotional vulnerability around it and honesty. Mm. And I thought that was a very good one because it was really about like how much of our programming and how much of the stories we say to ourselves or... Overcorrectedness in our own lives is based on our own mothers and then them from their mothers or, you know, the ones we saw around ourselves, the idealization of somebody else who had the mother you wish you had. And then you wake up one day and you're a mother and you're like, um, wait, what? (laughs) Or you find out information about your parent and you're like, oh, that really wasn't what I thought. And I just spent all of this time in life thinking something completely different than is the truth Mm -hmm. instead of making my own thoughts up. I thought that was really a great topic because I have two boys and I also am, I'm very grateful to have boys. I think it's a different type of parenting that's required. It Um, is. It's
1: more suited to me. Yeah. Well, it's less of a projection factory for sure. You know? And it's,
0: there's emotional disconnection in a certain yeah. way where you feel like, and, and that's a little bit of a relief when I see some of my friends with teenage daughters and I'm like, I just don't know if I could have done that. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. That seems like a lot. It's very confronting, you know, in the way that I think having two boys is confronting for my husband and I can just sort of observe them and say like, oh, this is so odd. And like, it's not that I don't identify with them, but it's just very different when you don't have the same child who's the same gender. They're just always going to be slightly foreign, slightly different. And you can be more objective. And you don't have so much of your own
0: stuff that you're putting onto these people. It's a much, it's much easier in some ways to just remove that piece of it. Where when you look at your own parent, I'm like, oh, I see now as a grown up and parent, how your own relationship with your mother affected the way you parented, which then affected the way I feel about myself. Mm -hmm. And it's to your point, it's like, once you take ownership of that information, it's like, well, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. What's your plan on on doing this? Because it's really up to you. Yeah. And so in the book, a lot of it is just about the responsibility at the end and be looking internally, letting go, paying attention. And that's as much as we want to fix, you know, fix the
1: hierarchy, patriarchy. It's really fixing yourself. Yeah, in some ways, it's just about this self-diagnosing because I think in this quest for goodness, when we feel something that feels bad, uncomfortable, icky, whatever it may be, I don't think that we have a lot of practice or a lot of modeling for letting that come up and even saying, oh, what is this? Or like recognizing that these emotions are fleeting and dynamic and full of information, full of information. And so I think our instinct as women is just to suppress and repress everything that we think or feel is bad. And it's very dissociating. It's very, it's a way of living sort of at half-mast. And I write about this in a way that's probably very relatable to women at work about, for example, envy, which was really sort of the gateway sin to the other sins in my mind, because it started with a conversation I had with psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb in her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Love that book. Love that book. It's an amazing book. And it's, this is a small aside, but it just lodged in my head, which is that she always tells her clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. And I was like, whoa, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Like, what do I want? Where have I been envious? And it was very hard for me to locate both of those ideas because envy is gross and uh, and I don't feel envy. I'm not envious of anyone. What are you talking about? I would never like, that's Malicious, that's icky, blah, 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 blah. And like, I don't have any wants. Like, I'm totally focused on what everyone else needs from me more so than I am about what I actually want in any situation. And so my theory, which I think I'm convinced is pretty accurate just based on the reception to this idea in the book is that we take all of that envy, which we don't diagnose, which feels so gross in our bodies. And then we project it onto the woman who is making us feel envious, the woman who has what we want. And we don't know what it is. So this is not conscious, but we say things like you can identify it because you find yourself saying things like, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. This is a lot of what was said about Hillary Clinton, for example. There's just like, I don't know what she had to do to get that, but like, I just, I'm not into it. All of this very generalized language, which is very culturally accepted when it comes to women talking about other women, we don't question it. It's just like supposedly who we are, which is bullshit. But if you stop and you say, wait, why is this woman bothering me? Like, what is the actual behavior? I think it's full of information. Typically these women are pushing on dreams that you have for yourself. It doesn't mean that you want everything that they have, but like maybe they have a best selling book, and instead of deriding their book for being bad, you're envious. You want that too. You need to step into your dream. You need to use that person as a model for what's possible, not as a negation of your own heart. And so I think we yeah. see this all over the place, all over the place, just undiagnosed envy. Projected, and we can stop each other. We can interrupt each other and just say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wait! Why does that school mom friend bother you?" Because you'll also find that the same women don't irritate you all in the same way. Does that go over well if you interrupt somebody and ask them that? Well, to say, like, it's just a question of, like, well, wait, 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 let's talk about that. What is it? What is she doing that bothers you? Like, tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. And you can usually get to a place where it's like, whoa, whoa, like I feel bad about my body and she has no problem showing her body off. Like, I think that this is information for me that really has nothing to do with her and her body, but is like me holding judgment against myself. I think we do it with each other gently and with love, but it can be sort of a major eye opener. And... You know, I've done it with my mom, for example, where she'll be like dissing someone on the golf course. And I'm like, but wait, tell me more. What is it? And it's typically usually like, she's too old to wear that skirt that short, you know, just like all this stuff where I'm like, okay, like, but what's the problem? Like, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And you get so much interesting information about yourself and what you want. And what you would never allow yourself to do. And then you can also explore that. Why do I not allow myself to do that? What is it in me that thinks it's inappropriate for a woman to run for president? What about her makes me feel diminished? And I want to caveat that you are certainly allowed to find women reprehensible and problematic. And but you will find that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example not envious of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I can also explain to you pretty specifically what it is in her behavior that is so concerning to me, where she's full of hate, where she's um, harmful towards other communities, et cetera. Like I don't actually really know anything about her specifically or have any specific feelings about her as a person. It's her behavior, the policies. The weird coats. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it's like
0: it's not. It doesn't. It's not not nebulous, and you're not judging her based on something that's like, "Mm, who does she She think she is? That's not the feeling. And I think a lot of it comes down to like judgment. Of others is based on something you want or fear too. Yeah, And it's like, well, what does that mean? She's spoken Marjorie Taylor Greene very clearly about who she is and what she wants and you can like it or not, but some right. mom or some coworker that's doing something that you want to do or has something or isn't working and you are, so they're doing this thing or started a business and you've always wanted to, that's where it's murkier where you're like, what is that feeling that is doesn't have a name yet. It's just, it's just angry or it's like ick. Yes. Correct. So what would you say? And then I will wrap this up because I could do this all day with you. What do you say to women who are working right now, who are doing the thing that we've talked about, you know, We all do, where it's like, you know, the helicoptering and the all taking on and the PTA because of the guilt and and you're working and this and you're hitting the burnout zone where you feel like you have to
1: give one thing up. And usually that thing is work. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, you know better than I do. Like, I am a big fan and this has worked for me in my career. And again, like, we're talking about burnout. So I'm not saying that that's not real, but of creating, I've always had multiple jobs. I actually just interviewed on pulling the thread, Bruce Filer about his book, The Search. And he talks about how we sort of, again, this is more cultural myth-making, the linear trajectory of any career, et cetera. And he talks about how most people have like five jobs, care job, Sort of their primary working job, a ghost job, which might be dealing with some sort of family issue, a sick parent, et cetera. A hope job, which is sort of exactly as it sounds like what you would love to be doing, what you would love to have your job. Maybe you're like making things and selling them on Etsy or writing on the side. And then side jobs, you know, doing extra things for extra income. He has a whole process. But I think part of it is sort of getting honest with yourself and making some lists. Like for me, a big part of what's driven me is this, we talked about scarcity briefly. This is the subject of of the greed chapter and this idea of enough. And like, I had never actually written down, what do I need? And what do I want? And I did it in an Excel spreadsheet. What do I financially need? You know, you could call this a budget. But for me, it was like even more top line than that of what is it that I need? I need to pay my mortgage. I need to pay for childcare, food, et cetera. But just writing it out so that I could be like, oh, that's the number. I can actually get my arms around this. I can figure out how to achieve this in a way that isn't just, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I won't have enough. This sort of breathless... Anxiety that was pushing me and driving me. So for me, it was concretizing the reality. And then with my kids, it was again, same thing like, what do I have energy for? What do they have interest in? And what am I scared of? So much of this is like just an internal conversation around, like, I want to actually codify and write down my anxieties so that I can address them and say, oh, this is valid. This is not. So I think that would be my best advice for getting clarity. And then if you're in a career, and this I've observed certainly, where you're like, this sucks. I've had friends who've done this, who've had the financial flexibility To be able to step away and have typically used having children as a means for exiting a job that they didn't like. And then they find on the flip side that they're like, well, I wanna do something else entirely, but it's much easier to sort of laterally move when you're in motion than it is to sort of stop and then restart. So, like, if there's something that you feel called to, again, use your envy who's doing something that you want to be doing? Can you hope job it? Can you start planting seeds there and work your way in that direction so that you can put down the thing that you hate and actually sort of shift gradually into the thing that you want to do? That is
0: such a good way to think also about the seven deadly sins, going through them Recognizing them in yourself and then trying to flip it, Mm -hmm. like
1: you just said, into how do I use this? Yes. How do I use this for more allowance, more life, more desire, more of me, and less self repression, self denial? And like, where am I in this context? And then how can I move forward? You're amazing. This is awesome.
0: I'm going to wrap up now and then I'm going to say just say <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And I just, you know, like there's all these women I know who are like doing all these book clubs and they're all reading your book. Oh. Like amazing. women who I wouldn't even think would be like attuned to this conversation. And I was su- surprised but also I was like that's awesome. Like that's a great place to be in in the world if people are really open to just diving in and having this
1: conversation. This is my dream. This is all I wanted was for the book to work, to sort of move through culture, women to women. And it's like, it's group work, really. It's working. So thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.